You're listening to the Expert on Europe podcast by UACES, the membership association for contemporary European studies. In this episode, we're speaking to Simon Usherwood, reader in politics at the University of Surrey. Hello, Simon. Hello, Helena. So we're going to talk a bit about Simon's career and research, his interest in Euroscepticism, some advice and tips for PhD students, and much more. Let's start from the beginning of your academic journey. What did you study as an undergraduate and what motivated you to pick that degree? I studied a European studies degree at uh, UCL here in London and I wasn't actually planning to to study that. Uh, I was going to go and do a geography degree because geography was my, my first love. And then I saw an opportunity for a degree for geography in German where there was going to be some sponsorship available and so I applied for that. And then college said that they weren't running that but they had this European studies degree instead so I went with that and actually it was a nice range of subjects ironically not politics uh, at the time because UCL didn't do that so of all the subjects that I studied in my undergraduate law history language literature uh, geography no politics uh, whatsoever so I've kind of fallen from that very general interdisciplinary undergraduate into something a lot more specialised. And where was your year abroad? So I did, uh, because I was doing German language, I did a year, an Erasmus year in Bonn uh, in Germany, uh, just at the time that the German capital was moving to uh, Berlin. So just very interesting to see a small town in the, the middle of a big upheaval. And for me, that was a really powerful experience not just academically and intellectually, but also personally. And you know, the, the friendships that I made in that Erasmus year are some of the strongest that I have from my, my time as a student. And yeah, it's, it's a really useful part. And it's one of the reasons why now I always say to students, if you can go and do a placement year or an exchange year, go and do it because you get so much more than you do in your regular studies. Then how did you get into academia as a career? Was it a conscious choice, an accident? It's an accident. I got to the end of my degree and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I think my my choices were either going and doing a master's degree uh, or going to work for a soft drink manufacturer as an an IT manager. And they they showed me their supercomputers and... uh, yeah, that didn't move me enough to actually go and follow that particular career path. So it was just really an uncertainty about what I might go and do. And this master's that I ended up doing, which was at the College of Europe in Bruges, at the time I didn't really know very much about it. My lecturers had recommended that I look into it. But that was just not with a particular view to anything. I'd become a bit interested in the European Union during my undergraduate degree, but I thought, well, here's an opportunity to learn a bit more. So really stepping into that world, and at the point that I started in Bruges, really becoming a lot more interested in the politics and the the particular area of European politics, UK relations. I wrote my master's dissertation about the, the discussion that was going on in the UK about joining the single currency. And then... From that, leading on to a PhD, I did a couple of years staying on in Bruges as a teaching assistant, got to meet a lot of academics, many of whom I still am in contact with uh, now, and it's great for kind of building up a a network of contacts and meeting practitioners as well as uh, academics, before coming back here to London to do my PhD at LSE. Um, And again, 
that was something that sort of gradually evolved during my time uh, as a teaching assistant. That I thought, well, no, there are some interesting questions here and some things around Euroscepticism that I, for me were very interesting. And I see that there is a big gap at that time in the, the late 90s. Hardly anyone was researching that area. And I was very interested to, to know more. And so coming back to London, doing the PhD was, again, a very instructive experience about how you kind of find your way in a field that doesn't really exist at the time. And, you know, there were literally four or five people in the UK, if not Europe, who were working on this area. I'm very fortunate that I got to meet those people early on and have conversations with them, very supportive. And then from that, really, everything else has, has followed on. So what was your PhD topic exactly? For two years, it was on Euroscepticism. And if you'd asked me at the time what it was on, I couldn't have probably given you much more clarity than that. And again, this difficulty that because there wasn't really anything out there that I could touch off directly, uh, it became, kind of, you know, I, I kind of was in the swirling miasma of, of things Eurosceptic, but not sure what. And eventually I I got an idea that was helped me to put all those different elements together and you know I think that's one of the biggest challenges and I find that with my PhD students now that getting the idea that is the thread that runs through I think is crucial and once you've got that things become a lot easier you know what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do uh, the th- those things and for me that was trying to understand the pattern of development of Eurosceptic groups in France and the UK from the mid 80s uh, because it's a very different uh, pattern. Largely that was about political opportunity structures. It's easy in France to set up a party that has can get representation in the uh, French Parliament, whereas here in the UK that's much more difficult, so you tend to have pressure groups. And that allowed me then to talk a little bit about the form of the groups, the activities that they had, and pulled together a lot of uh, data and information that hadn't really been there before. But you know, I'm still working through a lot of the issues that were interesting to me 20 years ago about this subject because there still is an awful lot out there that hasn't been done very systematically. Um, and just conceptually, the whole idea of Euroscepticism is one which remains very nebulous. You know, everyone says, oh yeah, Euroscepticism, I know what that is. But when you try and drill down as to what it actually looks like and what the features are, it becomes much more problematic. And yeah, it's it's been a, an area that clearly has moved a long way since I did my Uh, my PhD and has become a lot more consequential and a lot more studied. So that's also been a really interesting process, the way in which an area of research can become a lot more topical. Uh, And I'd always say to students, you know, it might seem, as long as it seems important to you to study it, that's that's a good start. You know, the rest of the world might not agree. Uh, And certainly my first years as an academic going to conferences, no one really bothered me. You know, no one would come to listen to my talk or if they did they would ask a question to somebody else and and that's totally changed now you know that the works is a lot more in people's minds so yeah if you're convinced about the value of your work then that's that matters yeah don't have to follow fashions how would you describe your skepticism in a nutshell i think my usual fallback answer is that it's well the first thing is that there are lots of different Euroscepticisms, you know, different ideologies, um, and people often kind of get blinded by the ism at the, the end of Euroscepticism. You know, they think that it is this kind of defined uh, ideological position, where actually it's much more like a practice. There are lots of different uh, things that go along. And 
because it cuts across party politics, public opinion, lots of different areas, it's very hard to kind of come to one thing. But largely it's about dissatisfaction with the process of European integration, usually, but not always about the EU, and the ways in which that then is is operationalized. So it covers a, a, a huge range. And for me, that's one of the things that's really interesting is the way that you, you looking at very different things, whether that's kind of radical left-wing Greek uh, political parties, or you're looking at far-right groups uh, in Northern Europe and all stations in between. And all of those things then have become more powerful because of that label. And so one of the, the kind of the interesting dialogues that you see uh, with people who've done stuff on Euroscepticism, that relationship with populism, which again is a, a literature that's become more and more important and consequential in academic debate. And populists have their own definitional debates and arguments, but it's the same in, in the study of Euroscepticism, that there is this kind of uncertainty about, well, what are we actually trying to pin down here? But also it means there's always something new to to be thinking about and you know some of the most rewarding conversations I've had with colleagues over the years have been you know somebody advances an idea and somebody says yeah but what about the Finnish so-and-sos or the you know the Spanish such and suches and that's that constant challenging I think has been frustrating at times and still you know one of the big challenges that we have in the study of Euroscepticism that we don't have a good theorization of the whole area is that you know we've got lots of material to work with and I think we do see more people who are interested in the subject. The One of the projects I've just been involved with which completed uh, last year was a, a handbook with Routledge on Euroscepticism which I did with uh, Nick Startin who's the incoming chair, uh, Ben LaRuth, um, he's now down in Australia and we we got together 50 or 60 people really very easily through a network which we had originally set up uh, here with UASIS through the collaborative research networks and excellent work and lots of ideas to digest uh, on that and I think that really shows how the literature has come along a long way. And would you say it's an interdisciplinary topic of study? It is. One of the things that has been very striking is the way in which we've always had uh, input from other disciplines other than politics uh, and even the people in politics take a whole range of disciplinary approaches so you know we've got some more quantitative types uh, more qualitative uh, approaches but sociologists we've always had uh, good interactions with because there's a lot of kind of sociological uh, processes going on in that uh, interest from legal scholars because sometimes these things are manifesting through the, the legal frameworks. And the economics has been less of a, a, an aspect of it, but certainly in trying to understand what's going on, having an appreciation of the economic dimension I think has been useful. And again, going back to my first degree, you know, I've always, I've never really thought of myself as a political scientist. You know, it's, I, I study things that are political, but I'll take tools from wherever and for me some of the most useful insights that I've got have been from other disciplines because actually you know the world is not organized in a disciplinary kind of way uh, and I think generally uh, it's one of the nice things about European studies is that it does have that interdisciplinary interaction and set of perspectives it's not doctrinal and disciplinary and uh, 
sometimes you can see that with areas of study which have just become very tram lines into this is the only way we can do things and you know if you only have a hammer everything looks like a nail what's been your most interesting finding gosh uh my most interesting finding or what other people might think um i think one of the things that's been a consistent theme and i think i have always tried to stress is that the attitude of other political actors to Eurosceptics has been one of either ignoring them or patronising them or being condescending or just saying you're wrong or you're stupid or things like that. And very evidently that has not worked as a strategy. And so one of the, the ideas that I've always wanted to communicate, and uh, Nick and I did a, a special issue of uh, JCMS five years ago now, I think, it's very much our argument that to take that attitude actually is not going to address the problem that if the European Union really cares about its uh, democratic uh, constitution and its legitimacy, then it has to start engaging with these kinds of voices. Uh, it, it's not a finding as such, it's more just about an observation of the way that this goes. You know. And what about now? What research question or issue is really interesting you at the moment? Well, what I'm working on is Brexit uh, at the moment. So for the last few years, I've been very closely involved with the ESRC's UK and Changing Europe programme, which is interested as much, actually more, in engagement in public debate uh, than being about a research project as such. So there are elements of original research, but it's been a lot more about trying to help improve the quality of politicians, journalists, civil society, debates around European integration. So clearly the the referendum here in the UK made that a much more pressing and pertinent topic. So most of my time is really thinking about aspects of Brexit. I'm very interested in uh, the process of Article 50, During the referendum, I was doing work looking at the Twitter traffic of the different groups and trying to understand what they were talking about, how they were talking uh, to different groups. And yeah, it's it's an again, it's one of these things which has got huge repercussions and and cuts across disciplinary lines. So uh, over the past couple of years, I've really had to properly engage with law, economics, sociology, psychology, areas that I haven't really known very much about, in some cases I haven't really known anything about, you know, going back to my master's lectures on the WTO and kind of brushing back up on how that works and just thinking about how all these things fit together. You know, I think it, it always is part of what an academic career should be about, is that you can't just talk to other academics, you also need to engage with the rest of society. Well, that leads me to the next question I wanted to ask you, which was more about how you see the relationship between your research and the phenomena that you are researching, so between academia and the political realm. So you've already mentioned how the UK in a Changing Europe project is trying to engage and disseminate the research that's being done, but do you have any more kind of general observations or thoughts in your experience? been an interesting thing because always in my research one of the things that I often had as a, a young researcher was people saying are you Eurosceptic you know why why on earth it goes back to this kind of attitude you know well why would you bother to study it and certainly I've had people not really wanting to engage with 
discussing it at all because it might give it some credibility in the public realm and that never seemed to be a very sensible kind of attitude and I think that that for me has been a key thing is that you it's all very well in an age of echo chambers and talking to people you agree with and also in just kind of debates that are often very divisive it's easy to to shut your ears to what the other lot are saying but actually you need to understand where other people are coming from that if you don't do that you're never going to find the common ground to try and find ways forward but I think it's incumbent on academics to be helping people to understand the world as others see it and being messengers across divides I think is is a really important role so that's always been there and actually that experience on Euroscepticism served me very well coming into the the referendum debate where clearly there was a lot of uh, tension and uh, concern about who was speaking for whom and on what agenda. Thank you. Listeners might be interested in your podcast, A Diet of Brussels. Can you tell us how that came about and what it covers? For many years now, I've been doing blogging, tweeting, and that's been very good, you know, and I certainly recommend that to colleagues as a thing to be doing. And I've been thinking a bit about doing podcasting, um, and I've been humming and hawing about this, about this, and this was early 2015. And... Ultimately, what happened was that the Conservatives unexpectedly won the, the general election that year, and so suddenly we were going to have a referendum. So I think the next day after that uh, general election, I did my first podcast and got some really good uh, feedback on it. So that podcast, Adata Brussels, which is at adatabrussels.com, has carried on. I, I didn't quite foresee it being quite so long-lived, but just lots of trying to answer normal people questions about the referendum about the eu and it's it's kind of developed over time do your students listen to your podcast they do uh and actually that was one of the nice things during the the referendum i always have said to listeners of my podcast you know if you've got a question send it in and i'll do an episode where we give you an answer Uh, And I had several students doing that. And that was quite nice that we could then blend that in with the learning. Once a student had a question from her dad, uh, which I answered, and then that that worked very nicely. So, yeah, you know, just thinking about that crossover between research and teaching, uh, that was a really obvious way that we could connect things together. What are the top books that you'd recommend for people interested in the topics we've just been discussing at an introductory level? I think there are... What are the... For Euroscepticism, there aren't so many kind of general overviews. I'd recommend my my handbook of Euroscepticism with Routledge, but that's uh, probably quite advanced and it's also quite expensive, although the e-book is very good value. There's also Cécile Leconte's book on Euroscepticism, which is a couple of years old, but I think is a, a good introduction to that. I think is very helpful. For Brexit... There's more of a challenge because this is such a fast-moving field that there hasn't really been the opportunity for academics to write academic kinds of books. The most useful discussion I've seen of what happened in the referendum is Tim Shipman's All Out War, which is from a journalistic perspective, but very insightful in the way that the campaign uh, worked and his follow-up. Uh, fallout uh, on the period since about the negotiations is is equally enlightening. So, but again, the the most exciting academic work that is going on 
on Brexit is found online. You don't have to pay anything for it. And there are some great resources out there, some great blogs, some great people on Twitter. And yeah, if you look, you can find some really good stuff. Great, thank you. What about some general advice for PhD students in European studies and related areas? What do you wish someone had told you at the time? At the time, I think one of the things that's striking for me is how different each PhD is. And maybe just if somebody had stressed that a bit more, I think that would have been good. I think there's always a degree of anxiety as a PhD student that you're not doing it right, that you see somebody else and they're doing something different. And I think if you can feel comfortable that the way you're doing it is a way that works for you and your supervisor, then that's the main thing. And it's recognising that what you're doing is a unique kind of experience. Um, to anyone thinking about doing a PhD, the first question I ask is, are you sure? Um, you, you have to really want to do a PhD. It's not enough to fall into it. I kind of fell into it, but I fell into it and did actually think about it because I'd met enough PhD students by that point that I knew that it's easy to kind of spend several years noodling around and then doesn't really come to anything. And actually it's a substantial piece of work and it's not so ne much necessarily about intellectual ability as the ability to manage a big project by yourself, largely. So y you need to be committed. The other thing is you need to go out and meet people. Even though I was uh, in the centre of London, uh, in an institution with lots of social scientists, I went out and I met people. But actually Oasis was a key part of that, that by going to Oasis events, I met so many more people than I could meet in my institution. And you have conversations. You, you develop your ideas. And again, the more you can talk uh, and articulate your ideas with other people, the, the stronger those ideas become because you, you road test them. And also, if you're thinking about it, a PhD is a, a way into an academic career, then actually meeting people is a very sensible strategy because people know your work they know you so you know at some point people will remember that you've been at the conference and you gave a good presentation and you did things like that the other thing i think i would always say to to students is use your supervisor the point of a supervisor is that things aren't always clear and there's always that temptation that you don't want to go and see your supervisor because you haven't worked out what the solution is Whereas actually that's exactly when you should be talking to them and saying, got any ideas about how I get past this block? And yeah, together, two heads are better than one. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you, Simon, for all of that great advice and for talking to us about your career and research. Thank you. For more UACES podcasts, visit uaces.org forward slash podcast and don't forget to subscribe for new episodes.